so I don't have any flip-flops anymore and most of my hats don't work. And I, sometimes I sit down and I talk to the dog, you know, and he turns his head, you know how they do? Oh, she, sorry. She turns her head and she looks at me with that funny look in her eye, you know, and I go, you have no idea what I'm saying to you, huh? And I think we don't think that that's us. I think, I think we think we know a lot of things. Well, a little more than 150 years ago, we bled a president to death because we were pretty sure if we took his blood out of him, that would take the sickness out. And around that same period of time, we thought giving people who had syphilis mercury was a good idea. Oh, you didn't know that? Yeah, we give people whose brains are being eaten by a disease heavy metal. Because that makes it better. And, and we go back, we, we wind things back, you know, as we look at Colossians chapter 1. I just, want, I just want you to, my prayer this morning is that we can get why all these things we're looking at through the Word of God. How, how, does it, how is this working? You see, when God created man, God walked with man in the cool of the evening and there was no breakdown between uh, the ability to have communication with God and, and man's existence. And however long that lasted, nobody knows. You can argue about it as long as you want. But at some point there was a fall of man, and then a little while longer the corruption of man, the angels corrupting man, and then a little while longer than that was the rebellion of man. And through all of that, through the fall, the, the, the accomplishment of what uh, theology calls the total depravity of man, the brokenness of man, we decided that we could think for ourselves and we'd know what was right or wrong. So God, who is transcendent, wholly other, beyond any of our ability to comprehend, the Bible describes Him as invisible, meaning uh, we can't see Him, we can't know Him, we can't understand Him. None of us would put our finger on God except that God first reveals Himself to us. And he's challenged with language, just like you and I when we train a dog, or we maybe talk to our children, or if you try to talk to my son who has autism, you'll, you'll discover there are some areas where language is, you don't, you don't have the words. So God began something in the Bible called progressive revelation. He began to reveal himself to men. He, he stopped, backed up from the global uh, outreach, if you will, and he pulled out one man, Abram. And he revealed himself to Abram. And then Abram has a, a child, Isaac, and he reveals himself to Isaac. And then Isaac has a child, Jacob. He reveals himself to Jacob. And, and then uh, they go into Egypt for 400 years and, and they begin to grow and become a, a, a big group of people. And then he reveals himself like he hadn't to the others to a guy named Moses. And all along the history of man, God has been revealing himself to men. But he can't start where we are today. Because man has this disease. It's called, we already know it all. No? You see it when you try to teach your children to drive. 
or anything else that they're already 100% sure they know and they don't need you for. And so God in this progressive revelation is revealing His purpose and plan. And He said from the beginning, look, here's what I'm going to do. Through these people, I'm going to bring... What what I really want is, is this nation, Israel, to be my servant and to be a light to the Gentiles and for the light of God to reflect through their lives so that the other nations can all see it and they want to come back. But we mess up over and over. So Isaiah 53, the servant became Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He took what what would the desire to work corporately through a nation through one individual because the nation can't meet up to the standards. And so this one individual, Jesus Christ, lives perfect, sinless, absolutely does everything that the Father wants him to do. He becomes the exact perfect representation of everything that is God, every understanding that we have of God. We're going to see through Jesus Christ and all that he did. And then he died, was buried, and rose. And he equipped a group of men who were around him. We call them the twelve. There probably were more than twelve. It doesn't really matter. But there's a group of men around him. They become the apostles that he equipped to now take the light that he illustrated through his perfect life and begin corporately again to reveal that to the nations. But where man fell short before, now he's giving them a gift. He gave them his spirit. He actually said, if you could imagine this, we've often said, well, what, wouldn't it be cool just if Jesus was just here? We've talked to him. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said to his disciples, it's actually better for you that I leave. How can that be better? Because he said, what I'm leaving you will give you what you need, what you lack. I'm leaving you the power of the Holy Spirit to move forward and do, to be the light that I'm calling you to be. So those 12 men go out and they turn the world upside down. Their lives are incredibly transformed from who they were to who they became. In fact, the same people who put Jesus on the cross look at those guys and they say, man, these guys walked around with Jesus. They were knuckleheads. What happened? They're turning the world upside down. How a bunch of fishermen are doing that. How, how is it that a bunch of blue-collar guys who never went to school, how are they accomplishing this thing? They're accomplishing it by the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. And, and so they write down for us the things that they did, how God spoke to them, the things God showed them. And we take those things down. We try to ingest them and understand what they're saying in God's revelation to mankind so that we can continue what they began. And in some places around the world, that's going really good. And in some places around the world, not so good. Because we are still, at the end of the day, men. Mankind. We still think we know already. We have a hard time walking humbly. So Paul, as he's laying out for the 
for the church of Colossae, he's, he's been instructing them who Jesus is, what he accomplished. He's the creator. He's the image of God. That he's God's final revelation to mankind. If you want to know what God thinks, who God is, what God's like, God said, look at my son. That's it. Perfect. That's, that's it. He, he has it. So we want to follow that example. And Paul, as, he, as we look at the text this morning, Paul is saying now in verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my suffering. You know what I like about that phrase, now I rejoice? It would mean that there was a time I didn't. You ever been there? You always rejoice in your suffering? Why, yes, I do. He's, Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering. Why? Because he's starting to put the whole picture together. You see? He's starting to put the whole picture together of how God's been revealing, how God's been showing himself to mankind so that man can return home. We're so sure that we're progressing. That's not what I see. I don't see us progressing. I see us regressing. I see us not able to talk to one another. I see us anger, angry more than we are, are rejoicing. I see mankind in this spiral away from God. Because I don't need Him. What, what good is He to me? He's just going to tell me things I don't want to hear. But He's my Maker. And if I can begin to understand... How my creator made me and what he made me for. And I can answer the questions that are bouncing around in our head. Like, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? How am I supposed to act? Those are exactly the questions that the word of God is answering for us. If you'll have ears to hear. And Paul, as he's seen all these things, and he's had the revelation of God, and he's seen God moving and working in his life, he says, man, now... I rejoice in my suffering. Now I get it. Now I get it. There, there, was, there are times, obviously, in, in uh, Paul's life, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're reminded. It says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, because God's been showing me so many things, and to keep me from getting my head too swelled up, right? Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. So he says, to keep me from getting too big a head, a thorn was given me in my flesh. God gave me the gift of a thorn. What? Yeah, he says he gave me a messenger of Satan to harass me. So this is spiritual. Some type of spiritual slash physical malady that, that Paul has that God gave him, that God allowed in his life, that God said, hey, you need this. And Paul's saying, why do I need this? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it, that it should leave me. I don't want to deal with this no more. You guys ever felt that way? <clears throat> I don't want to deal with this thing. I keep having to deal with the same thing over and over again. Maybe I have a bad temper. Maybe it's, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever thing, whatever struggle you may have. And gosh, I keep having to have this struggle. Paul prayed three times for deliverance and, and God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. See, Paul learned, when I'm weak, he is strong. When I can see 
my need for His strength in my life, then I will humbly accept that help. I need help. I can't do this. If you know you can't walk, and somebody's coming alongside to help you walk, then you're willing. Yeah, help me out. I can't do it by myself. But if you're pretty sure you can walk, even though you can't, and somebody comes to help you, you don't want their help. I don't need your help. I know how to do this. Paul's saying because of this thing in his life, whatever the thing was, because of this thing in his life, he had to trust God moment by moment, day by day. Because he learned these things through the revelation that God gave him, he can say, now I can rejoice in my suffering. Now I know it's all working something. Sometimes people get the idea that that life is just full of meaningless circumstances. That things just happen and they're totally out of control and, and it's just chaos everywhere. But God doesn't say that. God says for his believers, for the ones who have entrusted themselves to him, he says, look, I'm working in you. Nothing that you go through is, is just empty, meaningless. So God says, if you're going through suffering, I'm accomplishing something. I'm, I may be accomplishing something in you or somebody that's watching you that you don't even know. But God says this, same thing he said way back in the beginning, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, he says, trust me. Trust me that, that it means something. That it's important. And Paul, because he understood that those things are real, he could say, now I rejoice in my suffering. Not, not like I'm excited about suffering, but because I know it's for your sake. You see where he says that? It's for your sake. He says, this is for you. I'm, I'm going through things and you're benefiting Now, Paul was going through a lot of suffering because he's writing out the Word of God. 13 epistles, 13 books of the New Testament are going to come through his pen. And he's being arrested and harassed everywhere he goes. And you think, well, how can that possibly be good? Well, I don't know, but every time he got arrested, they'd lock him into a house. And they wouldn't let nobody interrupt him. And he'd call somebody, well, he wrote somebody. He'd write them and say, hey... Bring me the parchments. I got a lot of stuff I got to write. So he'd sit down, and all these guards would sit around him like, what are you doing? Well, let me tell you, I'm just, God's been revealing a lot of things to me, and let me share it with you. And that's how you have people in Caesar's household getting saved, and you and I have a New Testament. And all that is accomplished through his suffering. And as we look at the text this morning, it, there's, a, there's an interesting phrase. I don't want you to miss it. It says, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. What's lacking? Well, this is, this is not redemptive. He's not talking about redemption. We're saved by, by the fact that Jesus Christ was broken for us. Right? He says from the cross, it is finished. That's, that's done. So what does he mean? I, I'm filling up what's lacking. Because in the body of Christ, even in Paul's time, in the body of Christ, there's a lot of people who, who have heard about the revelation of God, but they never saw him. Did you see him? I, I didn't see him. But there were, during this time, men, 
like Paul and John and James and guys who had seen him were eyewitnesses of, of what he had done and the things that he had accomplished. And so, and so people are experiencing who God is through the lives of the apostles. And part of the picture that they didn't get to see was what's it look like when God's people suffer? Because there was a lot of suffering going on there. And so Paul says, I'm filling it up. There's a sense in that phrase where Paul's saying, I want to, in a way, I want to suffer more so you suffer less. Like, I, I want you to get, I want you to learn, I want you to see. What happens if that's how we view our suffering? If, if instead of seeing my suffering through the lens of me, right? Because that's the easiest one to see. I'm suffering. Me. Eyes are on myself. What if, what if we thought about it like Paul and we said, man, I'm, I'm suffering. Uh, I want people to see what it looks like to suffer for Christ. I want, I want them to see what a Christian looks like when they suffer. Now, what's that? What's that do to our mindset? What does it do? Does it, does it change maybe the way we're looking at things around us? We say, well, I mean, this suffering is for Christ. Then I want to fill it up. I want to fill up what's lacking. I want the church. I want the body of Christ, right? He used that phrase. I want the body of Christ to understand, to see. This is what it looks like when a believer suffers. Now, most of the time, I have a tendency to be a poor example of that. But you see, in God's revelation through Paul, I'm reminded when I read this, oh, yeah, that should be my attitude. I want, I want people to see this is what it looks like when someone who loves the Lord goes through hardship. He says, I'm, I'm suffering for your sake, for the sake of his body, that is the church. I want to be an example for them. In verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship that's from God. Who called Paul? Paul was called of the Lord. Did God, when he called Paul, did he say, was he sneaky about it? You know, Paul, I want you to come serve me and everything will be really good if you come serve me. Is that what God said? No, he told Ananias who was going to open Paul's eyes when Paul met the Lord on the road in, in Damascus. He told Ananias, I'm going to show him how many things he will suffer for my name's sake. So God said, hey, Paul, you take this road. There will be suffering. Why? Because there was suffering in Christ. Don't you see when Jesus came and he called you and he said to you, come follow me. Where was he going? Well, he, he was going to heaven eventually. Yeah, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but there's this little period in between. Yeah, it was a cross. There was a death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus says, come follow me. Come learn from me. Come understand what it is to walk this walk of life with me. Because I'm going to give you a picture of God. How God works all things together. For your good and his glory. Even in your suffering. So Paul says, man, I, I received this from the Lord. A stewardship. I got a stewardship from God. This stewardship from God was given to me for you to do what? 
to make the Word of God fully known. I want you to totally understand what God's doing. So, <clears throat> with that kind of attitude in mind, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. So he's, he's pointing to the Lord. Who comforts us in our what? Affliction. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. How do I know how to comfort someone else? I, how do I comfort somebody that if I've never been afflicted, if I've never gone through suffering, if life has never been hard, the one common denominator we all have is life is hard. There's heartache for us all. There's more than enough to go around. More than enough to go around. But he's saying, look, God is a God of comfort and mercy. He will comfort us in our affliction so that we can comfort others. So we can hold their hand, so we can weep when they weep, so we can mourn when they mourn, so we can tell them, God still loves you even in the midst of your affliction. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. It's not just suffer, suffer, suffer. God learned something. Well, that's bad theology. Sorry. God knows something about man. Man learns best in the furnace of affliction. When everything's good, it's easy to forget God. When everything's just flowing, milk and honey, whoo, I forget. But all of a sudden, you stop all that milk and honey. You let a little something come in, enter into life that's a little bit, throws things a little bit sideways. All of a sudden, my attention, God's got my attention. I'm like, oh. I think it was C.S. Lewis that says that God whispers something like he whispers in our success but he shouts in our pain we hear has i don't know if that has anything to do with god's voice it has to do with our listening are you are we listening so so through christ we share in the comfort it says in verse six if we are afflicted it is for your comfort and salvation this is what paul's saying so if i go through things i know it's it's helpful for you so he keeps in his mind this attitude of being other-centered, thinking about others, thinking about how <clears throat> whatever's happening in my life affects them. Now, it's way easier for me to think about myself. But Paul gives us the example. We want to be thinking about others. We want to understand what? That we can encourage the body of Christ through the things that we go through. This is a stewardship that God gave to Paul. Teach them the word of God. <clears throat> Teach them. How it is that, that God is able to, to pour out, that we're able to recognize and understand. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 16, he says this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul 
teaching. What, what's the stewardship? To teach the word of God, to teach the revelation of God, the things that God had showed him. He's, he's teaching us. He's gifting us with that. With that gift also comes the stewardship for those who receive it. Not to hold on to it, but to share it. To share the reality of what God wants to do, how God wants to move, how God wants to, to act in our life, how he wants us also. Now, Paul had a unique stewardship, right? He's specifically called for what he did. In Ephesians 3.8, it says, To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So, so he had a unique ministry, right? God called him specifically to go to the Gentiles to take them to them, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so that's what he did. He delivered those things, but we have a stewardship as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says this, this is how one should regard us. Now, Paul's using uh, uh, pronouns that invite us to be a part, right? Now, it's, this is for us. How should we think about us? How should we think about us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God? Moreover, it is required of a steward that he be found faithful. See, God wants us to be faithful. To do what? To faithfully proclaim his word. Oftentimes people tell me, you know, I, I, I just don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. You know, it's just like anything in life. If you want to understand it, you just got to apply yourself. I don't understand how cows work. I do not understand it. I was with a fellow the other day, was gathering up his cattle, and this giant bull coming down the chute, and this fellow weighed about 125 pounds. And he jumped in front of this 2,000-pound bull, waving his arms, Hey, ho, hey, up! And that bull turned. And I said, How'd you know he's going to do that? And he said, Because if he don't, I eat him. You ain't never going to get me to jump in front of that cow. But this guy grew up his whole life working cattle. And it don't freak him out. You see, we all become affluent with the things we want to know. My grandparents could not work a VCR to save their life. And some of you are saying, what's a VCR? Yeah. <laughs> They could not work a VCR to save their life. They could, the, that play button and the on-off, they were so hard to get. They still never got it. My grandma would call me and have me come over to start a movie every time she ran a movie. Will you come start this dumb VCR? Grandma, all you got to do is push play. I keep trying to push play. You got to put the tape in too. We all become affluent in what we want to know. Right? We all do. There's, when I first came to Idaho, there was like three smartphones. Now, you guys all got smartphones. And I don't know if you know how to use them, but you got them. There's one guy in this church with a flip phone, as far as I know. That's Mark Turner. He has a flip phone. And uh, that's about all the fancy he can handle. There's more? Lucille, you have a flip phone? Lord have mercy on her. How many people got flip phones? No one's got a flip phone too? Man. <clears throat> okay, so there's five or six. So you guys can see there are people out there like this. 
if we want to become affluent about something that we don't understand, all, we have, all there is left to it is to want it, to want to know. I want to understand the Word of God. A long time ago, when I was in my 30s, God did some stuff in my life, and I was like, man, I, I just want to understand God's Word. And so I just started. There's no shortcut. There's no, you know, you can't just Google knowledge, and it goes into your head. You have to actually put the time in to understand, to grow, to learn. Which is Paul's point in this section of scripture that he's talking about. He wants to bring people to maturity in Christ, right? If we want to know it, then we got to spend time in it. We, there's Bible studies around this place all day long. All day long. You got questions, you meet me Monday morning at coffee. You just don't like what I said, meet me Monday morning at coffee. It's the same. Sit down and we'll talk. We'll talk about the word. We'll talk about what we understand. We'll talk about what we don't know. And you can do that every Monday morning at 7 o'clock from now until the Lord calls you home and you'll grow as a result. Or you can sleep in. I do a Bible study at my house 6 in the morning just because some people have to go early to work. So oh, swing by my house at 6. We'll do a Bible study where you can ask your questions. We can wrestle with the things we need to wrestle about. Nothing to it but to do it. There's a Tuesday night sitting around a round table right here in, uh, in church arguing, talking about different things we maybe don't understand about the Word. Studying a book called The Unseen Realm. I think they are pretty close to finishing that and they'll begin a new one after but as they do, you can come, plug yourself in. Kathy, the ladies told you about ladies' Bible study. There's lots of opportunity, no shortage of opportunity. It's not about lack of opportunity. It is about lack of desire. That's not the same thing. So I can't say, on one hand, I don't understand it if I don't want to do it. I should just say, I don't want to understand it. I just want somebody to tell me what to do. Come to church every Sunday. Get baptized. Wear a tie once in a while. Christmas and Easter, at least. (laughs) No, we want to know him. This is the stewardship that God's called us. Listen to what Paul said in Acts 20, 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There are 66 books written by 40 authors, roughly over 1,500 years, sitting in your laps or in the back of the chair in front of you, all designed to help us understand God's revelation from the beginning of man to the end of man and what it is that God's looking for. And Paul says, I'm telling you all, what's the stewardship God's given us? We receive these mysteries from Paul. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to talk about them. There's a bunch of football games on today, yeah? Anybody going to watch football? Oh, no, I'm in church. I'm not going to say I watch football. (laughs) You're going to watch football, and I guarantee Monday you're going to talk to somebody about the game. Or you're going to watch Monday Night Football, and you're going to talk to somebody about Monday Night Football, Thursday Night Football. You're going to tell somebody about Thursday Night Football. Why? Because football is, is important to you. It matters. Doesn't that say something about me? Word of God. Does it matter? 
Nothing to it but to do it. How we learn all them stats about football anyway? Well, we spent a couple hours watching SportsCenter and ESPN. They tell us a lot of good stuff. Yeah. You retain what you want to retain. You understand what you want to understand. You know what you want to know. He says in verse 26 of Colossians 1, The mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Oh, I wish I knew what the mystery was. Don't you? Gosh, I can't believe he doesn't tell us. What's the next line? That's not hard. What mystery? There's a mystery somewhere which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. From the beginning of the fall of man, man's fall, corruption, rebellion, man corporately turning his heart away from God and going away from God, and God then revealing himself to man throughout history to bring us to the redemptive purpose of Jesus Christ and Messiah. All of that was an illustration. There were signs that God was going to do something, but really being able to nail down what He was going to do, they couldn't do till Christ. Then Jesus came and He said, Look, I know you're struggling. I know it's hard, but I'll live in you. And if Christ is in you, you have the hope of glory. If Christ is in you, if... If you want to say, I, can't, I, can't, I try to do all this, but I can't. I try, I try, I try. Just know Him. Just know Christ. Just pursue Him. Fall in love with Him. Desire Him. The rest of it happens all by itself just because of that. Because Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, he's working in you. He's moving in you. He's accomplishing his purpose in you. He wants you to understand. That's why Paul's telling us the mystery. Let me tell you the mystery, guys. I'm telling you that you can know there is a glory. There is a glory of God that man has not experienced since Adam. There's walking with God in the cool of the evening. They're sitting in the back of a Nissan truck in the middle of desperate hot things in California and feeling the presence of God in a Nissan truck. That's the closest I've ever been to what it's like for Adam to walk with God in the cool of the evening. That's from a pursuit of the Lord, pursuing Him. And I I want to know that. I want to feel that i want to walk and there will be a day christ in me the hope of glory means there will be a day i'm going to see his face but until then he's provided me all he can he's given revelation that he can i'm like the puppy with his head tilted like what he says right there jackie's it's in the book. It's through the prophets. It's through the apostles. I've, I've delivered everything I could. If you can't get them, it's through my son. You just gotta, you just gotta look. Look and see. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that you can have Jesus Christ living within you. That Christ can be in us and we can be in him. Just like when you breathe, air is in your lungs and air is outside your lungs. 
You're totally enveloped in it. He's in you and you're in him. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have this truth, this reality. In Romans 8 it says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. See, when Christ is in you, our body, our flesh still wants to do wrong. Our flesh still wants to fail and sin. But your spirit is life. You have Christ in you. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life. You can overcome. You can experience the things that we're talking about. You can't have all of those things because Christ is in you. Christ is in you. Ephesians chapter 1 lays out what is called the bracha, this this long sentence. Paul likes to write long sentences. So it's a 14 verse sentence about what it is to be in Christ. And one of the things he says is he tells at the end in verse 13 and 14, how do I, how do I get in Christ? How do I get in Christ and Christ in me? How does that happen? He says, you hear the gospel, you believe, and you're in Christ. I hear the gospel, I believe. That's what he lays out for us. It's how you get in. I trust you, God. You know how I'm put together. You know how all these things flow, how all these things work. It says in verse 19 in Romans 8 that all of creation is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation. When God made all of this, it was good. Been a long time since it's been good. We get little nuggets of good. But when God made it, he looked around and said, man, this is good. Man is good. Woman is good. Creation is good. Then the fall. Then the rebellion. Man's corrupted. All these problems enter in. The Bible says that all of the world, creation, everything in creation is groaning. Longing for the day when it's all redeemed. When God gets it all back. He's accomplishing all of that through Jesus Christ, his son, who meets the requirement that we can't meet. So in verse 28 of Colossians 1, Paul says, So him we proclaim. We talk about Jesus. We talk about Christ. Why? Because that's how people grow. Look what it says. Warning everyone, teaching everyone. How many? Is there a class of people that's not included in everyone? No? So that pretty much covers everyone. So he says, we warn everyone and teach everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We want people to grow, to understand Him. How do I, how do I talk to people about Christ? There's, there's two things you can do to talk about, to talk with people about Christ. You all have your God story, what God's done in your life. That's a great way to talk about Christ with others. The other thing you can do is learn Christ. The Bible says, study yourself, study to show yourself approved, the workman of God rightly dividing the word of truth. Study. 
That's how we know anything. Yeah? And there's two things to knowing. We study to know, and then you have to do. Man, I have read every magazine article and book I could find on how to hunt elk. But there's no stupid elk hanging on my wall. Because I am the worst hunter on earth. However, I can know what to do, but then there's a point where you got to do what? Go do it. You got to go run up and down on the mountains, squawking like an elk, hoping an elk will squawk back, maybe even come walking over to you. One day I'm going to bump into a hunter who's got a camera. And has watched me hunting, and he feels bad for me. He's going to call me and say, man, i got to fix you, brother. You're a mess. <laughs> but there's a point, right, where we learn, we study, and then we do. We study and we do. Great picture of it in marriage. You know, I don't have to, I can't, I can read all the marriage books in the world, but none of the marriage books in the world are going to help me be able to be the husband I need to be for my wife. I need to know my wife. I got to know her. And I've been living with her a long time. Long time. Don't ask me how long. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I'm pretty sure 33 years, but it could be 34. So which one was I right about? I said two. Oh, she always gives me the benefit of the doubt. So we've been living together for 33 years. I know what the look means. When she gives me the look, I know that look. I know, oh, I did something she doesn't like. I said something she doesn't like. I forgot something that I wasn't supposed to forget. But I know the look because I know her. And that nobody had to come to me and say, you know what? Know your wife. What's wrong with you? No, we, we all, when we get married, that's our goal, isn't it? Know our wife, know our husband, know the person we're going to spend the rest of our life with. Know their Wants, their needs, their things, their looks, their size, their all that stuff. We learn all that stuff because we want to. And when we aren't good at it, it's because we don't want to be. But it's not because you don't know. You know. We want to know Christ that way. So that him we proclaim. Man, I want to proclaim him, what he's done, how he's moved. I want to warn people. Hey, don't do that. that that's not good. Don't play in the road. That's a bad idea, right? We warn people. The idea of warning is to tell someone to stop doing something. The Bible uses this word. Repent. See, see the Lord commanded all men everywhere in the book of Acts to repent and believe. Repent and believe. We warn them, stop, stop that. And we teach them, do this. Stop. Stop rebelling against God. Stop running away from him. Stop. We warn them, stop, repent, change your direction. And then we give them the truth. Where do we find the truth? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 1, Jesus said that he is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Sanctify them, Father, by your truth. Your Word is truth. 
teach them what the word says. It doesn't lie about who we are. It tells us the truth about our nature. It tells us the truth about what's going on in our life. For what goal? What is our goal? We want to teach them and we want to warn them with wisdom. Right? We want to be wise about the things we say and the things we do so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. We want people to grow up. We want them to grow up. We don't want them to stay the same. We want to grow up. We want to become more like Him. We want to become the man or the woman that God wants us to be. This is the goal. So not only do we introduce people to who Christ is, but then we want to help them to grow up in Him. Understand so that they can then go and tell two friends. And they go and tell two friends. And you begin to watch a world transformed. What doesn't transform a world is when people give a lot of intellectual acquiescence. There's an easier way to say that. When people just give you lip service and nothing ever changes. Hearts don't change. There's no difference. Church is just like the world. The world is just like the church. There's not that love that Christ promised. There's not the power that Christ promised. There's all these things lacking within the midst no man we we want to go beyond just intellectual assent we want to go beyond just saying yes there's a god we want to go to the point where we bow before him and like a servant like paul we say i'm a servant you're the king you tell me where to go you tell me what to do you tell me what to say Isn't that the example that Christ gave? What's the Bible say about Jesus? He only spoke the things that the Father gave him to speak. He only did the things the Father gave him to do. There's a lot of things we think we should do, and we're wise, and we know a lot of stuff, right? No, not very well. Do you know how God wants to do something? Does God always do it the way you think he should? Sometimes God does it the way you think he should. Sure. Sometimes you don't. What do you do then? What do you do when you're Gideon and you have 30,000 troops and God says to you, Gideon, you have too many. And Gideon says to God, but Lord, the other guys, they got a lot more than 30,000. Well, you, you have too many. You guys are going to think it's you. Tell everybody who's afraid to go home. More than half your army goes away. Oh, oh we, we don't have very many left, Lord. And the Lord said, yeah, you still got too many. How many of you would think that? Yep, we got too many. We need to definitely get rid of some. No, the Lord whittles them down to 300 people. And he delivers through 300 for what purpose? So that God would receive the glory. So that the people would know what? That God saved, not them. That God did it. Does God always do it the way we think he should? No. So sometimes, sometimes... We need to be serious about what it is to walk in the Spirit. God, what what do you want me to do? Maybe I think I just want to go over there and and knock on that guy's door and tell him about Jesus. But Lord, how do you want? How do you want it to be done? I heard a story one time. A fellow wanted to walk with the Lord, wanted to walk in the Spirit. Man, God, I I want to walk in your Spirit. And so he's saying, Lord, that's... He'd go out every, every morning on this walk, and he'd walk around the neighborhood. Lord, I want to walk according to your spirit. I, I don't know what you want me to do, but God, I, just want to, I want to do what you want me to do. And he said, well, one day, I felt like God wanted me to yell, Jesus loves you in a mailbox. 
Well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. God would not ever tell somebody to do that. He walked right past the mailbox. Just walked past it. Kept going. But just, I don't know if it ever happens to you, but just had this nagging feeling. You know, so he walks back and he looks around. Gosh, I hope nobody's watching this. <laughs> opens the mailbox. Jesus loves you. Close the mailbox and walks. <laughs> he don't even get to the next house. And the dude comes running out of his house after him. Hey, mister. Hey, hey. And he's like, oh, oh. Tried to ignore him. Keep going. But the fella kept coming. Mister, mister, I, I just, I got a question. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> Why'd you yell Jesus loves you in my mailbox? Look, man. I've really been trying to walk in the Spirit, and I just felt like that's something God was telling me to do. I, I, I don't know why I did it. I just, I just felt like that's something God wanted me to do. He said, I, I was sitting in that house over there, sitting on that couch, and he says, I was just sitting there, kind of, my life's kind of screwed up. And, and I said, God, if, if you're real, prove it to me. And he said, right then you yelled in my mailbox, Jesus loves you. <laughs> You know, that guy used to own a polo club in Beverly Hills. One day God said to him, I think I want you to do something else. So he sold it, bought a boat, started something called Friendships. I don't know how that ministry is going now. Once upon a time, we used to do stuff with them, but... I've, I've been out of that area for a long time, but God used him in mighty ways because he was willing to do what God said. Sometimes it fits perfectly with what we think should happen, and sometimes it don't. But the way we know the difference, am I being crazy or not, is we learn him. We learn Jesus' looks. We learn Jesus' voice. We learn the things that God's will has laid out for us. Because listen, Paul says at the very end, For this I toil, what, what this, to present every man mature, that everyone would know Christ and grow in Christ. He says, For this I toil, agonizomai, I agonize, I struggle with all, what's that word? His energy. That he powerfully works in me. I, I want to do it. His way. His power. A lot of times people come to me, Jackie, my husband's a mess. What do I do? What, what do I do? What do I say to him? What trick can I do to him? What thing can I, can I get him to change? Oh. I don't have no magic words, man. Pray. Pray that God would work in the heart of your husband. My wife, would she want... Pray. God will work in the heart of your wife. My neighbor... Pray. God will work in your neighbor. Use the tools God's given you. Pray. Ask God to move. Ask God to work. Toil and struggle. Agonize over the issues in this world, but do it through God's power. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not my way. They're strong in the Spirit. They're mighty in God. For what? The pulling down of strongholds. 
It's God that changed me. People hear my story and they say, how in the world that your wife is so amazing, she just had just the right thing to say. No, she could not do nothing. She couldn't have done nothing. God had to reach into my heart. God had to do it. And that's how she prayed. Paul says, I want to bring everybody to maturity in Christ, but I want to bring them to maturity in Christ through the power of God, through his strength. So Paul would write in Ephesians 3, verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power, through God's might. Ephesians 3.20 Now unto Him who is able to do abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that is at work with us. What power? God's power. Philippians 2.13 For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasures. God's power. God's power. God's power in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. God has laid out this plan of redemption so that man can have hope that he can change. He can change his spots. He can change his stars. He can change his life. He can change his direction. But he does it through the power of Jesus Christ. He does it by God changing his heart. He does it by God working in him, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God does amazing things. Do you know him? Do you know about him? Can you tell somebody else? Can you spread the love of God? Once upon a time, we could. When I was a kid, I remember. Can we now? Can we still? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord. We thank you for the truth of your word, the power of the glory of God that is in us. God, the hope of glory that that is not my willpower that accomplishes anything, Lord. It's you living in me. And it... It's so amazing when we, when we consider your word laying out for us, calling us, directing us to come unto you, to open our hearts, to, to consider all the things that you lay out for us. God, I just pray, Lord, that we can understand, <clears throat> that we can see how blessed we are because of the revelation of our God and Father through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because He has blessed us. He's given us everything we need, everything necessary. He's laid it all out for us. Scripture would say, Lord, You chose us. God, that You you are choosing to present us holy and blameless. That You've adopted us. You, You make us part of Your family. That You saw us. And you wanted us. And you made it happen. God, you lay out for us that it's all according to your purpose. For your praise. That we might, that we might glorify you. That we might shine a light on the beauty of who you are. For you have welcomed us into the beloved. Into the family of God, Lord. 
You've given us redemption through Your blood and the forgiveness of our sins according to Your grace, which You gave to us. You just pour it out. God, Your Word declares that You have no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would repent. That Your desire is to see men repent. That's why there's been no judgment. That's why we find ourselves still calling upon the God of grace to save, to forgive, to redeem. So Jesus Christ, Lord, one day is going to unite all things, all men who have surrendered to Him, and He's going to give it back as a gift to the Father. Here is man redeemed from his rebellion, man redeemed from his fall, man redeemed from the corruption of the heavenly hosts. Here is man redeemed. And that man is going to obtain an inheritance. He's going to be gifted with things that that are of God. So that we who have hope in Christ become trophies of God's grace. God says, "I, I knew it wasn't just scrap. I knew there were people who would turn, who would respond to the gospel. So I'll give man this, this Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit which will empower him and equip him to be who he wants to be. And that will be the guarantee that I'll keep my promise to him. So in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with a promise, the guarantee of our inheritance until we see Him face to face. God, I pray there be anyone here that does not know You or this good news, this gospel. Maybe the one next to Him, His neighbor, His friend behind Him, someone would share with Him. As we worship, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here with issues or questions, they come forward and receive answers as prayer counselors will be available to pray. God, I pray that we, the body of Christ, could function as a body of Christ, growing up to maturity because we know you. Because we want to know you. And God, I pray that you be glorified in our midst as we we seek to make you famous because we're willing to tell people about you. Tell them about what we know. God, be glorified in this place as we turn our eyes and attention to you and the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.